Hey there, welcome to this episode of The Walk. I'm Father Roderick. It's another cold morning, and I'm on my way to the uh, editor, Hugo, who is going to help me with uh, another episode of my TV show. And I am in pain. <laughs> I really am. Everything hurts. It has to do with uh, my marathon training, or at least what remains of that, because I have been so uneven in my training for uh, for the marathon of Rotterdam, and I'm really doubting if it would be wise to run it. Normally, in this at this stage of the training, I should be running at least a distance of a full marathon throughout the week. Usually, you have a couple of shorter distances on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Then you get a day of rest, and on Saturday and Sunday, you've got these long stretches. Like, I think there are at least three training sessions where I have to run 20 miles. And that's on Sunday, and then on Saturday I'm supposed to run 12 miles or something like that. Well, for the past two, three weeks, I've been skipping all those sessions. Also, the the weekly ones, I think I did one what was it, 14-miler, and I did that on the treadmill, and I got so fed up with running, and <laughs> I was so um, slow, and, and I had to stop all the time and walk, that I just, I couldn't finish the 20 miles. And so yesterday, I decided to make a run for it, and <laughs> just try and see how far I could get, and... Uh, I ran outside, so not on the treadmill. Because, of course, the treadmill is also a bit flattering when it comes to speed. Because it's super, you know, the speed is super even. Um, You're inside, you don't have to, you know, struggle against the cold. Um, uh, There is no traffic, you don't have to wait to cross the road. So... It's easy to have, you know, good results on the treadmill. Plus, it's also flat, you know. Whereas if you run outside, there's more resistance. You may have wind, may even rain. And all that is part of a race as well. So if you only train indoors, it is, uh, it's, it's not the best preparation for the actual race. So I decided to go run outside. Uh, ran to the east. So I currently live uh, on the fringes of the city, actually in a village, and uh, that means that within five minutes I'm actually on the countryside, and I'm running among the cows, well, not really, (laughs) they're fenced off, but still, (laughs) and you've got some patches of uh, some woods, Um, there's there's a great variety, it's a a beautiful itinerary that I've uh, followed also while training for the the walking event in the summer, which actually I have to still enlist for. Uh, and this year I'm, I'm really thinking of walking 50 kilometers per day for four days. Last year I did 40, but I was also filming, so that slowed me down quite a bit. And every day I've, I've felt that I had energy left. I don't mind walking, actually. It's much less, uh, much less of a strain on the, the entire body uh, than, um, than running is. 
but despite the fact that, that it's a beautiful environment, it was still very cold. And I, I really, uh, I think, forced myself too much. I didn't run that much. I had a, um, an appointment in the evening to go film at a nearby parish. And I needed to be back home in time, so I had to uh, get start with the preparations for filming, getting the equipment and the tripods and the lights and everything because this was going to be a, an evening setting, so you have to always carry along a lot more stuff than when it's during daytime just because you, def- you never know what the situation is going to be. And I was right to take lights with me because uh, it was in a, in a rectory near the church and the lights were terrible. <laughs> it was not much, uh, you know, good light, definitely not good enough for interviews. Even filming the actual, uh, it was a, like an alpha course that uh, they give there. So it's an initiation um, to the basics of, of Christian faith. Um, all that was taking place in, a, in, in two rooms of the rectory that were barely lit. So I had to get, you know, faster lenses and, and extra lights, etc. So because I had to start preparations pretty early, um, I knew that I didn't have that much time on Wednesday to go for, a, for an extended run. So at first I wanted to do 10 miles and then I thought, well, if I can do 10, I can probably do, you know, 12 and a half miles, which is about a half marathon. And I, w- I told myself, like, if I can run this half marathon and still have energy left, mm, that's a good sign, you know. And I may have to kind of shuffle my, my training schedule around a little bit. Normally, before a race, you start to... Um, diminish the distances in time so that you're fully rested when you run the race. However, another strategy is to just keep running these long distances, build up strength until the very last minute. Then, of course, you won't be as rested as normal. Um, So it it would probably be much tougher to, to run that race. But at least I would have done everything to prepare my body for the physical shock of running 42 kilometers and 195 meters. <laughs> I don't know the exact distance in uh, in miles, but it's very, 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 very long. So I I tried to run 12 miles, and during the second half, so I basically I run as far as I can get, and then as soon as my um, my sports watch tells me that I've done six miles. I turn around and I try to find my way back uh, and do exactly the same itinerary. That's the easiest way in which I can can measure the distance and I know that I'll be back in time because I, I know exactly how, how much time it took me to run the first six miles. So it gives me a good indication of uh, whether it's going to be feasible. However, that, you know, the, the last six miles was just painful and I had to stop and walk and uh and then run a bit again and my my speed was going down uh, or my pace so all in all it wasn't a very encouraging experience and when i was back home i was frozen and everything hurt and i was also um experiencing a lot of pain in my right shoulder 
And this is linked to what I told you uh, in the last episode of the walk. I think I, uh, I'm suffering from a bit of uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, probably linked to... Oops, almost bumped into someone here who came from the other side of the corner. I'm approaching, by the way, the big entrance gate. I always love this gate. It looks like something out of a, uh, a medieval fantasy series. <laughs> Game of Amersfoort. Um, but uh, I, I've, I've been working nonstop for three weeks at my computer desk and not just doing the regular editing but also uh, trying to produce uh, live streams I did I did some gaming streams I've filmed I don't know how many YouTube videos uh, it's just way too much work at my desk and uh, I think that combined with not much exercise during the weeks and not stopping in time I don't have a a watch that tells me to get up and walk and that's probably something I would ignore anyway if I would have uh, such a, an alert because sometimes when I'm in the zone and I'm just working I don't want to stop well I'm paying the price for that right now and what I notice is that the, uh, the, the whatever it is that's causing the pain in my shoulder is also uh, giving me pain in my back when I run too much of course running is uh, an imp- has an impact on, on everything and all the joints and so I think it worsens the pain in my back so sometimes I, ha- I just had to walk because, because it hurt too much to run that's usually not a very good you know not, not a very good foundation for a, for a successful marathon so I'm still kind of holding out I'm going to try to run a little bit more today and uh, but this time I'll do it on a treadmill because it's you know barely above freezing point right now it's it's really cold um and uh we'll see if that if that helps uh, if i can get back into the rhythm um i'll try to do do a regular 20 miler uh, on sunday and uh and based on that i will probably make a final decision whether to go ahead with it or not would be a bit of a shame to cancel it because it's uh, quite expensive to sign up for a marathon it's uh, I think 90 euros I may be able to sell my my ticket uh, you know on the uh, on the market for people that weren't able to register in time for the marathon another option or possibility let's put it it's not really something that we can choose but another possibility is that the race in, in general will be cancelled because it takes place in Rotterdam it is the most popular marathon in the Netherlands this is actually going to be the Jubilee edition as well, I don't know how many years they've done this, 25 or maybe more and so normally you'll have about a million people that will be present at at that event and of course we're in the middle of this uh, Corona slash Covid situation and in several other cities they've cancelled marathons like in, in Paris um, the thing is that the situation changes day after day. Right now we have uh, a little more than 30 infections. Most of them are linked to people that visited the northern part of Italy. So they're still hopeful that they can contain it. Uh, but there are also some mysterious cases of people that incurred the, the, the infection or the, the virus um, without a, a specific 
connection to either China or northern Italy or any other region where the virus has been uh, has been found so far. So I don't know at what point they decide to cancel or not. I'm kind of following it every day um, because it's it's still uh, you know it's a risk if you have a million people out there. And uh, of course, a, a sports event like that—it's the, the the usual guidelines are very hard to follow in such a situation. I mean, you're not supposed to touch your mouth, your eyes, or your nose, right? When uh, when the situation is dangerous, uh, because it's through your nose and your mouth and eyes that the virus can infect you. But when you're running you're constantly doing that it's, you know your nose your mouth your there are people you, you need to drink so there's a lot of water a lot of fluids that are being distributed uh, the volunteers are handing out cups of water and sponges uh, to cool down the runners to tens of thousands of runners so the risk of um, if, if there's only you know one participant that actually has flu symptoms and is contagious, that person, just by using the amenity, am, amenities, what's the word? So to use the, the water or the sponges could potentially infect many people that are running uh, or, you know, are also part of the race. Um, another, another risk is for the public, the people that will come and watch the race because, well... Uh, uh, everybody is very close to each other. They're standing along the the road. So there too, if the, you only need one or two people that are infected without knowing, and they could potentially infect uh, multiple people. So something tells me that it's, it's likely that they're going to cancel, but it also sends... Uh, of course a certain message and maybe that is a reason to not cancel it because the fear is also something that is uh, you know part of the problem um it, it hurts the economy it uh, i don't know it's just everything comes to a standstill so it's a, it's a difficult assessment um and of course it's not up to the organization itself to make that final decision that's going to be the health services in the city of Rotterdam that will make that risk assessment. Um, but at one point they will probably have to um, give the green light or not because it takes weeks to, to get ready for a race like that and there are so many people involved. Um, not to mention all the runners that come from other countries that have booked their flights and the hotels and uh, everybody, of course, is preparing also for this. It's kind of similar to the Olympic Games in in Japan, if those were to be postponed, well, of course you could say, well, it's, it's just you know sports, so you can do that in at the end of the year as well. But you got to take into account the commitment of all these athletes and how much they've been training, uh, and training schedules usually are are programmed in such a way that you're at your peak performance right before the beginning of the games, and that's true for marathon training as well. It's all programmed in such a way that you are at your best for the beginning of the race if they postpone uh, a race because i i think that they'll probably not cancel it but they may push it back 
further you know down the road or have it in the towards the end of the year um, but that means that you have to completely rearrange your training and maybe you've already signed up for other races as well um, I haven't so far there is an Amsterdam marathon in the in the fall uh, but I know that you know, a lot of these runners run several races each year so that's going to have a lot of consequences we'll see we'll see but uh for me, the race itself is, of course, uh, kind of a byproduct. I, I run races because it motivates me to start training. And by training a lot, I hope to stay healthy. And that is important for everything I do. Let me see. I'm here at the house of Hugo. And I need to put this in the box with... I always, I'm always afraid to put the footage in the wrong P.O. box. So it's that one. It's just an envelope with a, a very small SD card. Okay, there's more. <laughs> there's more meal in that box, so he probably hasn't been down the stairs yet to pick it up. I'll, I'll send him a, a message that it's there. It's quite incredible that you can have so much footage. I think in total I must have filmed for two hours in that parish. Um, and it's on this tiny little SD card. The SD card itself is small, but then it's just a holder for an even smaller, like a micro SD card. And it carries 128 gigs of footage. Unbelievable. Something always makes me uh, want to make several copies of, of the uh, of the of the material because it feels so fragile it's just an envelope and I know that it's you know usually very safe um, it's much much more reliable these SD cards than you know older hard drives that would be mechanically uh, based because then you have moving parts and only a few years ago, I would regularly um, put an entire hard drive into his P.O. box to deliver the, the footage. Now it's just this tiny little microchip. Unbelievable. So, uh, hey, speaking of, uh, about the, what I filmed yesterday, that was quite inspiring. So I'm uh, doing a series about parish renewal, uh, which is something that's constantly on my mind. Um, it's no secret that in many parts of the Western world, uh, the church is declining incredible, at an incredibly fast pace. And uh, just recently, we've uh, heard that one of our biggest churches is going to be closed and uh, rented out to other parties. Um, and it's given a lot of... Um, it has had a tremendously uh, negative influence on the parishioners... And also, I have to say, I'm not immune to that either. It's discouraging. It's, this is one of the churches that I've worked in for, for more than 10 years, and I've given so much of my time and energy into building up the faith of that community. And it's, it's amazing, and I'm very grateful to see how much has been accomplished when I arrived. It was a very, I don't know, liberal uh, um, parish church um, with 
um, I don't know, it's just the, the influence of a, of a previous generation of priests. Um, and, and people were just, I don't know, uh, almost hostile towards certain aspects of the, the normal sacramental life of the church. And it took years and years and years to kind of turn that around. And I'm very happy that now it's a vibrant uh, location uh, where people really pray and it's, uh, it's warm. And uh, I think a lot of people have really rediscovered the personal nature of faith and how important it is. Um, and it's, it's that church that they're now going to... Um, to uh, uh, to take away from from the community, and they so they all have to migrate to another church, and they don't even know which one that is going to be. And statistically, we know that more than seventy percent of the parishioners that are coming to this location will not migrate to the new church, mostly because of very practical reasons. They're elderly; they are not able to. They don't have a car. Um, they you know. It, the moment you, you close a church, there is a huge percentage that will stop going to church um, and will, I don't know, watch mass on TV. or um, So it's very depressing <laughs> that a lot of the, the work that you put into that is now at risk because of the closure of that church. What makes it even more depressing is that this is just one of the many churches that will have to be closed in the next couple of years. And instead of kind of thinking about, well, this is, this is where it's going, this is what we want to keep for, let's say, five years from now, we will have this situation, and so we're going to make the move to that new situation at once by closing several churches. Uh, they've chosen to do it one by one and to let the, pro- the whole process um, uh, work out organically. And I think that that is going to be so detrimental to the overall atmosphere in the parish. And it's so discouraging. I regularly have to celebrate Mass in churches where it's an absolute certainty. <laughs> and of course, well, there's always faith and there should always be hope. But at the same time, you we're invited to also use our brains. And Jesus at one point even tells his disciples... Hey, if you want to build a tower, before you start building, you sit down and you count your money and your resources. And otherwise, you're never going to be able to finish that tower. And if you want to go to war, you first look at your army, the size of your army, and you look at the enemy. And then if you don't have enough resources, well, it's better to start peace negotiations. So Jesus himself, um, I think, teaches us to to be responsible and to also use our brains instead of just hoping for some miracle. Um, and so if I look at many of the churches where I have to celebrate Mass in the weekend, you just know that that's never going to work. The resources, everything is got. There's no more money. There are only very old people in the church. And what is the most uh, depressing is you feel that uh, what, what has remained is so superficial and it's all you know people that have been going to that building out of tradition because they've been doing that for many years and but you you lack this this living faith that you feel that people are truly trying to follow Jesus and 
and and pray and I don't know it's it it's hard when um, when you feel that you're actually more uh, a you're part of service personnel that is required to perform rites or rituals but there is hardly any demand for it other than well we just want to keep this building uh, open and so there's the kind of the church of maintenance Um, a a Canadian priest Father Mellon wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago that has recently been translated in Dutch and it's called Divine Renovation and uh, it's one of two books that are dedicated to this whole idea of uh, assessing the situation, looking at the flaws of our current our current church life, and then coming up with possible other directions. And so um, there's the book Rebuilt, which is an American uh, book, and it's written from a pr- kind of an American perspective. Um, Father Mellon is a little bit more theological also. Um, so I, I kind of like it even more than, than Rebuilt. Um, and he's got the, the he's he's got proof that if you change course, then the parish can actually renew itself and can thrive even. And uh, it's not linked to the personal charism of of the priest, uh, which is I think essential. Uh, it's one of the biggest risks I think in Catholic Church, and it's certainly something that is at play in Protestant communities where the entire community rests on the shoulders of the the most visible person and that is the vicar, the pastor, the, the priest. Um, and if that person falls away or, I don't know, dies or <laughs> moves or I don't know, then what you, what is likely to happen is that the entire community collapses so what I like about both books is that they emphasize the importance of uh, renewal coming from a renewal of the heart and that the uh, the church where you're just maintaining the situation for the sake of money for the sake of buildings for the sake of uh, catering to um, the expecta- the current expectations of the current churchgoers, <laughs> uh, that church is doomed. That that church will never survive because life is not there, and people are uh, forgetting that the most imp- essential part of, of be- you know being a church is that you are followers of Jesus, and that He should be the central. Uh, figure in any organization and in any liturgy and not you know the the building or the choirs or uh, a charismatic preacher all that can help but if it becomes the main course that you're serving then the church has no future and i believe that that is exactly what we're currently uh, experiencing in in my parish and in many other places in the, the western church in decline and uh, yesterday in that parish that is just about half an hour by car from where I live they have started to um, to renew everything and it was it started from the same 
situation as uh, I'm currently in. Um, the, the, the person who is leading this renewal, or at least the, the uh, educational part of it, uh, told me that he, uh, befriend, he actually wasn't even Catholic. He uh, had been converted to Catholicism in jail. Um, he had a very personal story about having been abused as a child. Um, and then that destroyed his life. And, and uh, he ended up in prison. And at one, day, one day, he told, well, he told this freely. And it was a beautiful witness. There, there was a, uh, a priest who, who came to visit him. Or maybe there was a, a prayer service. And the priest walked up to him, gave him uh, uh, a a blessing, uh, a cross on the, on his forehead, and told him, "You are loved. God loves you." Uh, and that was like a that was a that was a moment of, of of total conversion for him. That despite everything that he had done wrong, uh, everything that had gone wrong in his life, God was loving him and wanted to forgive him and so he befriended the the the, the priest in this uh, neighboring parish so I, I assume that uh, you know prison life had already been uh, was, was already over for a couple of years and uh, and the priest was this is a young priest was also in a kind of in a state of discouragement and you know why? Why am I priest when what I what inspired my vocation is nothing like what I'm doing right now? I feel that I'm just upholding uh, something that bears no fruit, is sterile, it has no future, and there is nothing to compensate for that. And uh, there was another person, and the three of them sat down and. I think that's when they decided, well, we can do two, two things. We can either, uh, uh, you know, mourn and, and uh, complain and be depressed about this situation, or we can ask God to help us renew this and to turn this around. And so they, I think at one point they read the book of Father Mallon and one of the uh, ingredients or one of the recommendations of this book is uh, let go of the things that don't help people to become disciples of Jesus. This is all about discipleship. <clears throat> and so what you do um, should be um, purified in a certain way. There are a lot of parishes, and I totally recognize the situation in my own uh, parish, where there are tons of activities that are just um, organized to bring people together to have a good time, but not necessarily have any religious purpose. Um, and so people will gather for coffee after mass, and then maybe I don't know, there may be uh, bike rides, or in one of the churches, they organize meals for the elderly. There is almost no religious content. There is, this is just a social activity. And uh, the, the book kind of motivates parishes to t 
turn that around, it doesn't mean you have to. You don't have to be sociable, and it's it's not that the church is not about bringing people together, but it should always lead to something. When Jesus feeds the the thousands um, with the multiplication of the bread and the fish, it is because they are his disciples. They follow him. That's how they ended up hungry in the first place. But it's not that Jesus said, "Hey." I can do this trick. Let's do some bread multiplication and have a great time eating good food for free. No, it was all about communicating to them that he was there to feed them. And that's, and that's what Lent is all about. You discover that uh, it's important to be, to be fed not just by bread and, and physical food, but that you are invited to feed your spiritual life with what uh, Jesus tells you and, and uh, with the love of God. And so one thing can lead to another and that link is often forgotten in our parishes. So they started this uh, Alpha course and it was an immediate success. They had a, a lot of people signing up. I, I interviewed one lady who told me that uh, she had been brought up Catholic and went to church when they were still living in the east of the country. Then they moved to this new parish. And when she went to church at first, she was so put off by the... Uh, everything was mechanical. Uh, ev- everything felt distant. There was no... There was no living faith. And it turned her... So it, uh, it made her turn away from the church. And she didn't go to church for, many, for multiple years. And then she... She, there was this new priest and they were, uh, had just started this whole process of renewal and by accident or maybe during one of those you know celebrations where even uh, fallen away Catholics will still go to church you know Easter or, or Christmas she didn't specify she, um, uh, she was so touched by the warmth and the 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 how'd you say that the spirit of the words of the priest and then she heard about this this uh, initiative of the alpha course and joined that and it, it changed her life it changed her faith and she said I've, I've turned into someone who loves to share my uh, the faith with the people and in in her assessment one of the biggest problems of Catholics is that they they have never learned to share their faith and to talk about it. It's something that you... That's the last thing you talk about. You'd rather talk an entire evening about politics than about faith. And uh, this course is based on a very simple premise. So you start with a meal that you cook together. You eat. And you don't have to talk about faith at all. You can talk about anything. But it, that, that lowers the, the threshold tremendously. Uh, so you get to know each other on a human level... That creates a certain safety and, and trust. It builds up trust. And then there is, in the second part of the evening, there is a speaker that explains certain aspects of the faith, usually the very basics. And then the last half is maybe the most important ones. The group splits up in smaller groups and they react to what they've heard and they share their experiences. And because all of that previous process has already built up trust and a safe environment that's what helps people to slowly bit by bit the course itself is uh, 
is an, uh, a whole number of evenings. It helps people to start sharing, and that's where usually the changes started to occur. They've been doing this for five years now with tremendous success. It's been spreading to the parishes in the, in the vicinity. And what triggered me so much was that uh, this Eric, who organizes these courses, told me that both the priest that initially helped them to set up this course, as, as well as his successor, who is currently the pastor in the parish, have both been touched in the way they experience their priesthood by what's happening. And the current priest has said he participated last year in what they call the Weekend of the Holy Spirit. So there's kind of like a, a, a mid-course a mid, uh, retreat of two days. It's, it's, it's in the same location. They don't go to a monastery or anything. But they pray. They have adoration. They pray for each other. There's still some, some uh, teachings as well and, and exchange but the priest himself was participa- just participating, so not leading or anything. And um, at one point he was asked to bless the participants with the sacrament uh, that was being uh, adored in, in the, in the monstrance. So it's the consecrated bread. Catholics believe that Jesus is truly present in that bread, so it's not just symbolic, but he's, he's there. This, this is my body, this is my blood. And so it's, it's, uh, it's more than a remembrance. It is the, tr- the true presence in their midst. And so the priest takes the monstrance, which is this golden or, I don't know, beautiful uh, holder for the host, for the consecrated bread, and then blesses the people. And that was the first time in his life as a priest that he truly experienced what a, what a grace it is to be able to bless people to literally bring uh, the love and the protection of Jesus to the to these to, to these participants, and uh, something just happened there. And he, of course, it's very difficult to describe a religious experience, but it 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 completely. Well, I wouldn't say it turned him around, but it, it touched him on a very very deep level of his soul, and uh, and from that moment on, he's been promoting this 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 whole alpha process uh, as much as he could and so it's spreading in, in the region and every time they, they organize that it has the same result people are, are being touched and faith becomes something that they integrate in their lives again and instead of, of only looking at the external aspects of of faith, like the building or the choir and everything, it's all about this relationship with Jesus and and this ecclesial relationship that becomes uh, the 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 primary ingredient of Catholic life. And so I was very triggered while I was listening to these interviews. I was like, oh, I so hope that this is going to happen also in my parish. And this could be a cure to the pessimism and even the cynicism that you see. And also the, you know, what do people, when they, when they are afraid, um, in case you're wondering, I'm pacing up and down in front of the supermarket where I'm going get, to get my lunch <laughs> or buy my lunch. But um, the, uh, uh, when, when people are afraid that things, that, that they're, you know, what they hold 
dearly is taken away from them or being destroyed, they lash out. Uh, I think a lot of the current polarization in some parts of the Catholic Church and the way that people uh, seek refuge in um, these, you know, hyper-traditionalist movements um, start hating on certain bishops or even uh, oppose Pope Francis and and just the the, the overall um, the level of negativity I think is a symptom of the pain that people are experiencing aggression and uh, um, you know very negative feelings uh, are, are often a sign that there is a deeper wound somewhere and I think I think that the, the way to heal that is not by adopting the same attitude and, and so I don't believe in these flame wars and never engage in these polarized discussions because it's it's not about being right I think a lot of the criticism doesn't even come from a, 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 a Concern. Well, it's often formulated like that. Well, we are concerned for the integrity of the Catholic faith. And so these culture wars are, I think, ultimately, in its deepest core, fed by fear. Fear and uh, maybe even a loss of faith, if you think of faith as, as being able to trust, to trust even fallible ministers like priests and bishops. I mean, there is no pope or bishop or priest or deacon that, or a religious person that is without mistakes and without sins and without maybe errors of judgment. And yet God has always worked through fallible people. Look at his own apostles. But if you start to think that the church can only be saved if we get rid of all these sinners and all these, you know... Uh, half-witted priests and bishops and popes, then you miss that aspect of faith that God is in control of his church no matter what the, the, the personnel messes up. And the renewal of the church will not depend on, uh, on, on you know, having this, this rest uh, church of people that uphold the true faith. I always get very itchy when people think that that is the solution and that they are you know on the right side (laughs) you know they're they're right and everyone else is a sinner and should be expelled Um, but it is that the the real renewal comes from the renewal of the heart and it is God who is who is starting and building up this renewal Uh, the success of the church in the early centuries of Christianity was not based on the theological wits of the apostles Thank God it wasn't, because that would have been a disaster. But it was when they, the big decisions on dogma and, you know, the contents of faith and even the organization of the church were built on, on meeting and praying together and trying to discern the Holy Spirit. And if you discard the Holy Spirit and you, uh, you don't um, pray together and you don't forgive each other for the mistakes, then... You know, you push God out of the uh, out of the equation, and as a, an end result, the only thing that you will accomplish is a human result, and that's usually not the best result. So, what I love about this whole process of church renewal, 
um, that I now have witnessed with my own eyes. This is not no longer just theory from a book, but I, I, I've heard from the participants how much that has changed their lives, and I was touched by what they, what they shared. Um, based on on what I've seen, I I feel that this is this is this is the cure. It's God who is doing this. Um, this is happening in in uh, in in a church or where I was yesterday is in the middle of the Bible Belt, the Dutch Bible Belt, where Catholicism is not really in a good situation socially and in terms of the number of people, but God acts anyway, and He is changing people anyway, and He's He's and uh, um, Eric said yesterday that he wouldn't be surprised if. God would start the renewal of his church and rebuilding his church in one of the places where the church is at its worst in the Netherlands where everything is falling apart there is nothing anymore to be proud of to you know to that, that will give you the idea that what we're doing is currently working because it's not and even if we lose our church buildings how has that ever stopped Jesus from from acting in the world if he can be with people on the on the run uh, refugees people in prison if he can t- if he can convert someone who is in prison with one simple blessing then why are we still in despair when we have to close down buildings it's it's a sign of maybe uh, something else that is missing in our faith um so anyway, it was, it was super inspiring. I uh, I think it's time for me to get my lunch because it's almost one o'clock and Inge is at the office as well. <laughs> so I don't want to uh, make this longer than necessary. But it's something that was very hopeful. It's not, it's not yet. We don't have Alpha course in our parish and I don't see that many signs that this process will soon start in our parish as well. But maybe it will. I don't know. I hope that with the... TV episode that I am uh, putting together and by the way I'm not editing it myself that's another I feel so liberated I Hugo is is going to edit it so that's why I brought him the material and it's it's just one of those things I feel that uh, yes I I would like to edit it myself but I shouldn't I have to make room to first of all to heal my carpal tunnel syndrome it's I mean it's not that bad but it still requires rest and I also have to kind of you know, take it easy after three week, weeks of, of working almost day and night. Um, so that feels good. Um, what was I going to say? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, what I hope is that because I've outsourced this, there's only one more, uh, well, actually two, two more episodes that I have to film. But that's, you know, I like filming. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very fast process. It's just, you know, making nice pictures and doing interviews. Um, and then I'm done with it. So hopefully um, with the added margin, I'll be able to, uh, to record um, the English voiceovers for my Ireland series. Uh, so the documentary that I filmed with my phone in Ireland um, last year and that I really, 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 really want to share with you. So I'm going to be working on that and then uh, maybe you know, a few YouTube videos. And if I can find some energy, some streaming as well. M- many people have been 
missing these these live streams on YouTube, but I wanted to um, give myself permission to not stream when I'm exhausted, and I've been exhausted almost every evening. And so instead of forcing myself to, you know, do everything and to do everything well, I, I'm just taking a break from, from the things that I just can't find energy for. But I'm sure that if I, now that I've, you know, structurally solved a number of things, um, that, you know, well, I'll be back. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. So, uh, and of course, these audio podcasts, that is, that is relatively easy to produce. So those will be there every week anyway thank you so much for listening thank you for your time i hope all is well know that i'm praying for you and um if you want to support uh me and want to help go to patreon.com slash father thanks for listening talk to you soon